There was a story that caught my attention when I first started studying Tasmanian history. It was the tale of a bushranger named Mike Howe. He called himself the Lieutenant Governor of the Woods, at a time when Tasmania or Van Diemen's land had only recently been claimed as a colony by the British invaders. Mike Howe was an old sailor, a war veteran whose vision of life was scarred by violence, who at the very least had traumatised dreams. He absconded to the upper stretches of the Shannon River, on the far edge of the central plateau, took off with an Aboriginal woman and a dog called Bozen. However they arranged this, they made a formidable trio. She knew the land. He had his experience with the colonial authorities, and the dog brought a new skill set into the ecosystem. They say that Mike Howe was a man with dark features and a big black beard. Later he pulled together a small gang and his men called him captain. He promised them a route to India. In the meantime they raided the farms on the outskirts of towns. They emerged from the forests, from the shadows, and descended suddenly on these outposts. The captain wrote letters to the colonial authorities in blood. He plundered the farm of the real lieutenant governor, filling his own knapsack with government wine, sugar and green tea. He stole a dictionary too, to help him keep a dream journal. He wrote his nocturnal imaginings in possum blood, on kangaroo skin. There's no primary source left, of course, but they say his head was full of nightmares of being surrounded and slain by Aboriginal tribes, of reuniting with victims of his murders, of his sister suffering half a world away. A journalist who got his hands on this dream journal dismissed the writings as tedious and tossed it all out. But for me, these were the outworkings of the history of my island, of an era of sorrow and force, of dispossession of every kind, of distance and of life in the bush. It is reported that Mike Howe's journal was also full of lists of flowers he wanted to plant around his hut in the mountain retreats to which he'd been led by his Aboriginal partner. Apparently he'd stolen a book on horticulture as well. A generation later, an historian would say that he wanted to adorn his seclusion. And indeed, companionship can be found in the growth of vegetables and flowers. Comfort can be found in the rhythm of the seasons, in the regular arrival of fruit and flower and seed. But there would be no peace in that man's life, never again. Soldiers in disguise ambushed them in the southern midlands. Mike Howe shot his woman, perhaps by mistake, wounding her. And they say she may have been pregnant. Without her, the lieutenant governor of the woods was lost. Soon after that, he was captured and decapitated. Mike Howe's bad dreams had sprung from the blood and hide of his journals and come to life.
dreams often do. They come rippling through the membrane that's supposed to separate the real world and that hidden realm. <laughs> that's why we should never think of dreams as tedious. I once had a dream in which I was shot in the head. And I remember the old school friend who did it too, the bloody rat bag. I woke up maybe a second after the bullet went into my skull and I could still feel the hollow spot on the left-hand side of my cranium. There was no pain, just a gap. And sometimes when I lie down to take a nap, that feeling comes back to me. Nowadays, it's just like a small cavity in my memory, a spot of amnesia. And all the various thoughts I put together as I try to sleep go down their separate synapses to that hollow spot. It's like coming down a walking track and suddenly finding a place that you have to create. Where there is no landscape to perceive, only to invent. So you might put in a big grove of pencil pines or a handful of eucalypts. You might make it an alpine heath with straw-coloured sedges and rough, bald rocks. Or a series of flattish paddocks with cows scattered all over them. There could be lavender clouds drifting in wisps across it all, or a big squall coming across. Or perhaps you put there a market in a Middle Eastern city, or an old European ghetto, or the goat-infested hillsides of a Mediterranean island. Or you might plant a Yorkshire garden upon the open, undulating high country of central Tasmania. The south of the earth has now travelled beyond the point at which it moves its furthest from the sun. We've done the winter solstice. It's as if this land mass has strayed, unfaithful to the day, but now the seduction of the night is wearing off. I've said it before. In a mere few months, those of us at southern extremities will scarcely believe that so much time was spent in our planet's own shadow, as if in the world's hinterland. Like snakes, we will return to the surface of the earth. But for now, I make the most of the effects of winter. I'm living in a train carriage that's been dragged into the bush, which by a mixture of choice and chance is without electricity. So I watch the sunset at like midday, and then live by the light of fire. And at an early hour I let the logs burn low and quash the candlelight. So I'm getting a fair bit of rest. My bed's in a small timber cottage behind the train carriage. And I keep the door open because I like a cool night's sleep, I guess, but also because I want the sense that the outside world can still pervade my dreams. The cottage is insulated by millions of words. 
stacks of books that stand precariously over me while I slumber. I'm sure that these stories, too, enter my subconscious on the sly. And perhaps there's something powerful about the fact that I might die before I wake, crushed to death beneath a thousand second-hand paperbacks. It's been a long time since I've given myself the chance to enjoy so much rest. At the end of my adolescence, I convinced myself that sleep was an enemy, and so tried my best to exhaust the waking hours with whatever experiences I could attend to in full consciousness. But that was coupled with an absurd and apocalyptic sense that time was minimal, I'm grateful to say that I no longer feel such terror. But sleep is nevertheless the simplest of all the responsibilities we might shrug off, since it makes no complaints. And in essence, it's only a responsibility to ourselves. So, In the past busy seasons of work or travel, I have found myself cutting short the hours in which I might dream. But sleep is a miracle which, like swimming or eating pears or falling in love, is no less wondrous for the fact that it's common. An old mystic once said to me that God made it so that animals needed sleep, because in that state we were able to accept a level of basic help that we'll generally refuse in our waking hours. Which is kind of a humbling thought, nice idea. Certainly, this submission to the subconscious gives access to a vast repository of symbols and ideas that seem unavailable to us in the midst of ordinary daytime activities. As a result, this strange period of time has become an extraordinary season of dreams. There was an Arabic writer of a medieval manuscript, an ambitious text that describes itself as an introduction to the history of the world. In it, this bloke recorded a mantra that some barbarians used for remembering their dreams. It has impressed me so much that I have marked it on my left palm in indelible ink and I repeat it every night before I drift off. And so it happens that I'm now inundated with dreams. Last night I dreamed of an ice cream shop in Iceland. It was run by an historian I know from Reykjavik who had seemingly switched careers and now served pints of pale ale alongside his elaborate bowls of dessert. I can hardly account for all the toppings. Every now and again he'd wander over with another wondrous addition. Colourful baubles, curls of shaved ice, dollops of stewed fruit. As I finished these sweets I told this historian confectioner friend quite sincerely, that it was the best eating experience I'd ever had while travelling. And now, awake, I would say the same thing. I also have this correspondence with a woman in the city of Gaziantep, which is just north of the Syrian border, and uh, she too has a tendency towards vast and memorable dreams, perhaps the result of various rituals and ordeals her aunts make her undergo. We both often dream that she is travelling in disguise, always in a hooded jumper even in the height of summer, about to arrive unannounced somewhere near where I am. 
and I too have found myself wandering amongst the pistachio groves, up a slender set of stone steps into a citadel where she will be waiting with a solution to some political unrest. And I dreamed of a situation in which I was stranded in her city. I was lain out, prone. My left leg, I could see, had grown into an oak tree. But when asked what had happened, I declared that I was turning into the temple of Jupiter Dolake, the major deity of that city from two millennia ago. When I wake, I sometimes feel that something similar has happened, albeit in a different sense. My life this winter becomes something of a monument to inertia and rest, to a technique of letting the imagination be influenced by the movement of the subconscious more than anything else. And I whisper my mantra, like each syllable was a bead on a rosary. I saw an advertisement for a mattress that claimed to have an outlandish quality. Zero gravity. At first glance, of course, that seemed pretty impressive. But after a short while, I had my doubts about it. Gravity seems to be quite useful when it comes to getting a bit of rest. I have no real need to physically float off as I sleep, as if unconscious on Aladdin's carpet. And as I discussed with a mate when I saw this promotion for a zero-gravity mattress, whilst an invitation to share such a thing may make for a pretty swish-sounding pickup line, I suspect it could actually make for a challenging night of romance. But I am the sort of person who claims to be able to sleep anywhere. Cabins, cubbies, spare couches, patches of carpet, train carriages... One night I arrived by aeroplane to Kuala Lumpur and took the last suburban train out to an apartment building where my friend's mother was to meet me. She wasn't there. And it became apparent that there had been some sort of a mix-up. That this woman hadn't received the message that I was coming. And so I sat on the steps, watching energetic rats emerge from a rubbish skip, thinking how they seemed content enough with their accommodation and I started to wonder if I might not be able to join them. After all, I have slept in neglected mountain shelters that were pretty much the same. In one hut in northeastern Tasmania, I was woken by a sugar glider in the walls, seemingly chewing the timber cladding apart to buffer its own nest. Half awake and half asleep, I quite clearly heard it speaking in a surprisingly plummy English accent, obviously in its glee. It was repeating the same phrase over and over again. That's the stuff, it was saying. That's the stuff. Nowadays, even when I travel to a city, I bring a tent. I survey metropolitan maps in the same way that I do the charts for mountain routes, searching for places where I might safely bivouac through the night. 
but sleep can be disrupted in so many different ways that it's hard to prepare for every contingency. Once in a European mountain range, I heard a rustling outside my tent. I'd been warned of wild boars that roamed the ridgelines there. But when at last I put my head out to see who the visitor was, I found instead, in the diffuse moonlight, a white horse. Another time I woke up to find that the roof had caved in in an apartment where I was taking a nap, and the room was now flooded by monsoon rains. Sometimes the outside just wants to come in. Here in the train carriage I'm roused by the alarming shriek of a masked owl. But worse still are the nights when I seem to have been woken by the crushing weight of remorse or regret, fear or confusion or doubt. I was once shaken awake by the realisation that I had mistranslated a single word in a manuscript that I'd sent to a publisher. It's there at the intersection of sleep and wakefulness that the strangest thoughts develop, the eeriest premonitions, or the most sorrowful remembrances that penetrate into the past like a laser beam. Darkness is compost for the imagination. On the phone the other night, a friend told me she used to be plagued with nightmares, one tortured scene after another, some of which she described to me, each of them deeply upsetting. The horrors she'd experienced in childhood had forced a crack in her psyche through which all sorts of awful possibilities could enter, doubling her trauma. She said that she spent so much time running away in her dreams that she would wake up physically exhausted. Yet she finished this story on a triumphant note. You see, all that running became such a cliché of her dreams that she started to become aware that if she was fleeing something, it was probably not happening in real life. And as with those who train themselves to lucid dream by creating physical symbols which might catch their attention mid-dream, my mate said she started to realise that she could control these nightmares. So she turned around, with her fists balled up, and started fighting back the demons of those dreams. There are, of course, those whose lives pass mostly in those hours of darkness. In the night, the bubuks and the potteroos are free to exercise and explore, no longer exposed to the troubles of daylight. Wombats gallivant and quolls scurry about. They know the constellations and watch the moon mark out the seasons. Falling dew forms jewels in feathers and fur. Such critters are aware of the silent solitude you can find in shadows and have mapped out an intimate geography of the night wanderer's private terrain. They're like certain types of troubadour who would sing in the evenings at the windows of would-be lovers. In some seasons I too have exchanged the day for night, 
shifted my personal time zone. In these periods I admit that I have taken on marsupial scavengers as my role models, and so submit to the habits of Tasmanian devils, who drift fast through the nights, without glamour, in their search for a feast. In Mexico City I lived with a man who had tattooed on his neck, Sic transit gloria mundi, so passes the glory of the world, a carnivorous mantra if ever there was one. We listened on repeat to an old Catalonian air that described a love affair that lasted 19 days and 500 nights. And looking back, I believe that in that city I spent the same quota of night and day. There was little incentive to sleep anyway, since when I wanted rest I had to curl up in a hammock woven out of corn husks, strung up in the corner of an apartment that was roughly the size of a good travelling suitcase. I now have to confess that after all this recent appreciation of sleep, I had to go to Hobart for a week or so, and while I was there lived pretty much entirely nocturnally. It was my first real outing in a good while, and it made for a memorable time. Life down there is in an interesting state. Despite the last remnants of restrictions on our social lives, there hasn't been a case of coronavirus in Tassie for a month and the streets are full to overflowing as if it was a holiday. We know what's happening in Melbourne, and we know we're not so far away from them, and the frustration they're enduring going back into lockdown now. One day in the not-too-distant future our borders will reopen to the outside world, and our immunity will be diminished. So it was with some relish that I accepted a series of nights that all blended into one, Tours around public bars where we found absurd characters, took on personas ourselves, drank beers of every colour, pursued the folklore of the night, barely ate, and did not sleep. In the night, something nudges you to undertake the most spontaneous deeds. The further you drift from the prospect of sleep, the deeper you enter into the labyrinth of what you're capable of. The night world is a warren of possibilities. Full of new desires, you squeeze the last colours from those dormant hours. The stories told in the absence of sunlight are shot through with the most fierce feelings, the most fatal regrets, the most vicious swings between tragedy and comedy. This was known to Eumaeus, the old swineherd who took in Odysseus when the latter returned to Ithaca. The nights are magical, he said. With time enough to sleep and to enjoy hearing a tale. If you want to sleep, that is. In his hut, with a bit of grog and tucker, they caught up on the events of many years, their stories' shadows lengthening in the firelight, the version of myself that lives in the night is an extrovert. He's confident, opinionated, gregarious and garrulous and full of gestures. He's like Don Quixote, always following some self-appointed mission to whatever preposterous end. And as such, he's a bit of an idiot, but he's entertaining and far more open and available to strangers. 
a better linguist, an outrageous spinner of yarns. He overwhelms the person I have been for the past month. That me, the one who's been holed up in this train carriage, is kinder, caring and careful, a listener, more feminine and more likeable. And yet as I was finding, he is less able to relate to the rest of the world. He's awkward, without wit, tragically unable to flirt. It seems unfair that the the better version of myself no one gets to see, and yet anyone might meet the oafish lout that I become on those nights out, whether they want to or not. Yet in this hectic hiatus in Hobart, I learned that I am not yet ready to renounce the night. But what a relief it was to get back to the quiet calm of the train carriage. To get a good night's sleep and wake up to the tropical chattering of birds and frost on the lawn. Ready to recount the full itinerary of my dreams. I live in a train, so it's not surprising that my subconscious stories sometimes make the train an icon, a symbol and a vehicle for narrative and travel. In one dream I was sitting on the top of a train riding through Japan. It was an exhilarating journey. At first I was there with an enthusiastic fellow traveller who I realised was the reason I'd climbed on top of the carriage in the first place. But then she was gone. And alone, I leaned back, then clung to the edge, ducked as we entered a tunnel, and sat cross-legged as we sped through a blue-grey landscape of low mountains and light mists. We came to a city and an older man jumped on the roof with me, At first he spoke in a bizarre language, but soon figured out that I couldn't understand that, so he reverted to English and said, Yes, hold on. Nothing is so important as to hold on. Trains and sleep go together, I guess. I wonder how many nights I've now spent on the bench seat of a moving train lulled by its rhythm and its monotonous metallic sheen of noise, contorting my body into strange angles so that it'll support itself as we race through some darkened province. There was an unforgettable journey I once took by train through southern Europe. Just as evening fell, I passed through a mustard-yellow former Yugoslav terminal and waited to be shunted out of the station, heading north. 
We were waved off by a curmudgeonly warden and soon the hills dissolved on the horizon. And the train was almost empty, so I had a compartment to myself. I'd been hiking and so I rested my enormous backpack against the opposite seat, took my shoes off and put myself in position to sleep. I was woken around midnight to have my passport stamped. We'd crossed a frontier somewhere and then the train continued a little further on and slowed again to meet another platform. I noted the station name before I caught sight of the commotion. We were at Prezevo, just inside the Serbian border, and on the platform there were hundreds and hundreds of would-be passengers, mostly men, singing in unison, expelling a plume of condensation with each lyric. The train came to a halt and they rushed into the carriages, searching for a room so that they might get some sleep before arriving at the end of the line come morning. They were migrants. They too had been hiking on an unmarked route across the Balkans in a race against fear and police. And they'd slept in roughly built camps along the way, just out of sight from the train line in fitful bursts of rest broken up with intermittent nightmares. There were Syrians, Palestinians, Kurds, Afghanis, and their journey was one that had taken on the proportions of an epic. When the train departed Prezevo that night, I began to make conversation with the chaps in my carriage, and we yakked away for quite some time. We traded stories and each tried to understand the reasons for our respective journeys. Then we got some sleep. When we woke, Belgrade was shrouded in grey, and there was little more to do than to wish each other the best and go on our separate ways. I did not envy their quest. It struck me that Even where our paths had run parallel and close, they had never overlapped. The search for a place to sleep is the crux of the deepest purposes of our lives. To be rejuvenated by rest is to be able to be healthy, safe and at your best. Sleep is where we prepare ourselves for the challenges of the coming day. And their challenges would be immense. As for me, I I found a hostel and took the cheapest room I could, sharing it with sleepers as restless and fitful as myself. Becoming my extroverted and nocturnal self, I recklessly went round for round with long necks of beer seated opposite a Polish woman. We sat in the kitchen getting more and more slovenly and the night threatened to turn into day. And then we heard the knocking on the door. An unseen receptionist greeted the Syrians there wearily. She couldn't give them a room, she said. 
with just a hint of genuine sorrow in her voice. If they didn't have passports. They disappeared into the anonymity of the night. The Polish woman and I each went back to our respective bunks in the dorm room. And once more I was made aware that sleep was one of the many miracles to which I had easier access than most.